Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring initiation from an anthropological and historical perspective. My guest, Andy Hilton, is the author of Anthropology and Mysticism in the Making of Initiation. He's also edited an anthology called Perspectives on Commoning. Welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. You have endeavored in, in your book to actually, I, I would have to say, establish a new field of study. Uh, you call it initiation studies. Which is a logical name for the studies of initiation, yes. Uh, historically, there have been many studies of initiation in anthropology, for example, but no name of this as a, as a discipline or a sub-discipline, so I give it that name. Yeah and extend it with my vision of what initiation might be to include disciplines that are not normally included under that rubric. Mm -hmm. Well, I, it might be useful to mention uh, right at the outset that you were inspired to engage in, mm -hmm. in this project. I, I think it took you some 30 years to, <laughs> to write your book because you went through what we'd have to call an initiatory experience yourself. About two-thirds of the way through it, specifically a nine-month period, uh, there was a workshop given by Robert Bly on male initiation. And at the start of that workshop, he said there are three kinds of initiation, male, female, and spiritual. And as he said that, the penny dropped. Ah, so that's what's happening. I'm going through a spiritual initiation. So that gave me the name for the experience I was going through and established my interest over a few years, yeah. yeah. And I, it's also fair to say that in your case, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And, and it really led you to uh, begin a decades-long study of, of what the concept of initiation really means. Indeed, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. From starting from the point of uh, Robert Bly with male initiation, critiquing that from a gender perspective, going back to the anthropology and the roots that he was picking from, critiquing that, noting the shamanic initiation aspect and how that came through in the spiritual traditions and theosophy and such like, and wondering where all this fitted, how we got from the tribal to the to the theosophic, it didn't really. Uh, so I was trying to figure out how this all came together. So that took me into the history of it, into the roots, to try and get some sense of the of the whole thing, where we'd come to, and also where we could be, because the general assumption in anthropology is that there is no initiation anymore. So I wanted to kind of try and rework that idea a little mm -hmm. bit. Well, I, I gather an important notion uh, mm -hmm. that anthropologists have come up with is, is the idea of a rite of passage, a, right. a transition from one stage of life to another. In anthropology, there have been three major contributions, I would say, 
in the 20th century. One was the idea of rites of passage from Arnold van Gennep, Le Rite de Passage, just a direct translation into the English. And that became like an item of, of contemporary popular culture. Uh, death and Rebirth uh, is another one. Uh, and the third from Victor Turner, uh, picking on the central part of the tripartite of Van Gennep's separation, liminality, incorporation or reincorporation series, the central part being the liminal, and that's Victor Turner's focus on liminality or marginality. So we have liminality as another contribution of initiation studies to contemporary culture. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I know you don't write about uh, the bar mitzvah, but, <laughs> <laughs> but as a growing up Jewish, the bar mitzvah is a major event in, in most Jewish boys, a bat mitzvah for Jewish girls these right. days. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that was always the case, but it was a very clear demarcation between being a child and being recognized in your religious community as an adult. Right. Mm -hmm. And in, in my case, uh, I, you know, grew up in a Midwestern town, very conventional, conservative, uh, community. And, but the bar mitzvah was a huge event. Right. I, you right. know, prepared for it for uh, over a year. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, would you have been considered adult? For ritual purposes. Right, now, okay. You know, I, I tried to tell my parents, <laughs> I'm an adult now, I can decide when yeah. I go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> no way, that didn't work. You but, know, culturally, I was not an adult, but I was entitled at that point to hmm. participate in the uh, Jewish rituals as any other adult. Right, and from my perspective... That would be better conceived as a separation ritual, mm -hmm. uh, initiating your entry into the liminal phase, which is youth, yeah. which starts at, for example, age 12 and continues an indefinite period, but certainly through adolescence, maybe through the 20s, maybe through the 30s even, mm -hmm. until a period of settlement, mm -hmm. which is a more contemporary notion of adulthood, whatever that may yeah. be exactly. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed uh, in reviewing your book is that amongst, uh, for example, I think it was the Australian Aborigines, mm -hmm. uh, their initiation rituals were pretty rough. I mean, they knock out some teeth. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, uh, one of the early uh, glyphs of, uh, of initiation, knocking out the, the teeth. That was noticed by the British explorers in the 1700s. Uh, 1690 even, I think, was the first uh, expeditionary journal recording of of native peoples, uh, whatever the, the phrase was for the native peoples, with one or two teeth knocked out. And, and that continued, and, and Robert Bly is still noting that. It continued through the history, that noting of the knocking out of teeth, mm -hmm. yeah. But the scarification, I think, was much more painful procedure. Uh, but, yeah, sure, all these uh, tribal... 
as they call tribal rituals of initiation, involved uh, pain, I, I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. But not necessarily. It, for example, the Native uh, American rituals of vision quest, where the 12-year-old, for example, not necessarily, would be in a, a, a hut, like a little lodge, you might call it, and just be by themselves for 10 days, taken food and water by their parents. So that wouldn't necessarily be painful in a physical sense. But it involved isolation. It involved isolation, yeah. Uh -huh. It would be quite a lot of psychological pain, I should imagine. <laughs> now, I know, um, just had a friend return from a visit to South America, mm -hmm. uh, where in Colombia, the Kogi people live high up in, in the mountains in very inaccessible areas. And they take the uh, certain people who are initiated into their shamanistic tradition, and they keep them in a cave. And they mm -hmm. live in that cave by themselves for sometimes 10 years. Okay. Uh -huh. Very mm -hmm. intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be intense. And uh, the cave as a motif of initiation is, is uh, found in the Greek period, for example. Uh, the Plato's cave, we, we take, we've gone back there with the cave idea. Any kind of uh, covering, insulation, uh, entrapment will, will work for this. The alternative is not going inward out of society, but going physically outward of society, so going outside the village territory, so you're going into the wild. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's kind of two ways of going out into of the cave normal. or out into the woods and a vision yeah. quest. Yeah, so either way, they're rather different, but either way, you're going out of social life mm -hmm. and the normal patterns of, of, of existence, of, of relating to people. Uh, maybe, so in the classic male sense or masculine toned initiation, it would be out. And in a, with group, so it'd be a much more group affair, and the internal one would have a feminine toned initiatory sense. In your cave one, that's a little bit different. Again, you mentioned shamanism, so that's more like I, I, I kind of relate the spiritual and the feminine toning as a little bit connected in that sense. They're more interior than exterior. Mm -hmm. Well. One of the things I gather the early anthropologists noted as they began studying various indigenous peoples is that their initiation rituals were often quite complex. They had stages mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. initiation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, the early anthropologists were struck by how uh, the aboriginal people seemed to have a process very much reminiscent of, of the ancient Greeks. Yes, but also they would relate it to the Freemasons mm -hmm. uh, and they gave the name initiation in, in Australia in the 1840s and that would have been related to the, free, to the Masonic naming of that ritual uh -huh. as initiation because previously the the masons had, had called it admission and they moved from admission to initiation 
So far as I can see, a little bit before anthropology did, but there's a, a complex interweaving of, of influences there. But it, it suggests now, if, the, if we see initiation rituals amongst mm -hmm. uh, indigenous people, people right. who were not regarded as civilized, right. although, uh -huh. though one might question that judgment uh -huh. these days, uh -huh. but in any case, uh, there seems to be some kind of a continuity, maybe going back to ancient Egypt through the Greeks and into the Masonic and Rosicrucian traditions right up to modern times. Yeah, yeah. And, and in my book, I call it the making of initiation. So, yeah, we make that continuity. Uh, uh, partly through the vocabulary, using the word initiation and throwing that back to the ancient mysteries where the word initiation wasn't quite uh, used in the same way, wasn't used at all necessarily. And a lot of translations of texts from the Greek, where of course there was no word initiation, uh, have, have, have brought in initiation into those original texts where it wasn't there. So we've made that lineage. So you're suggesting that that could be a projection of the modern mind back historically. Yes and no, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes and no seems to come up all the time uh -huh. uh, in, in your work because there's uh -huh. so many different threads. Right, yes and no. <laughs> uh, a projection, of course, uh, a construction, but then any reality is a construction. So does that make it any different from any other, anything else? Uh, to some, In some ways... Definitely a projection, but in other ways, no, the common thread is there to be seen. Yeah. So then we get into deeper notions of how we resonate the subject of the, with the objective to come at a sense of reality such as there has been initiation through the ages from times in the Paleolithic caves until uh, now when I was when I was coming here uh, chatting to the person next to me, he said, Previously, I told him what I was doing. He said previously on his flight on the pilot, the young pilot had crossed the international date line for the first time on KLM. So they dressed him up in women's clothes, makeup, put him and took him around the plane. So they're still going on uh, these little ceremonies of, of initiation, yeah. even now. Uh, I don't know if they those people would have considered that an initiation, but probably they could have used that word in, in mm. Dutch. This was KLM, but they, they might have used the word initiation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I might just mention, for benefit of our viewers, you flew mm. to Albuquerque from Istanbul. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, especially to be here. Yeah, yeah. For which I'm very grateful. Well, me too. Thanks. And uh, it, it does seem that there are many, many different kinds of initiation. On the one hand, to demarcate the difference between being a child and an adult. Yep. On the other hand, uh, the making of a shaman or, or a high priest. Yeah, so if we go back to where I started with Robert Blythe, he split male, female, and spiritual. Uh, spiritual just being a word, you might say mystical or some other word, of course. And male and female are the two, the binary for adult. Mm -hmm. So we got the split between spiritual and adult, and then we got the split adult, male, female which is also critiqued, at least by me, not, not not conventionally, but I critique this splitting of male and female. I don't find it, I find it a little bit rigid, a little bit exclusive, and there's been certainly work in initiation looking at third sex, third gender subjects, which is uh, 
problematizing this binary there. But but overall, that's the adult side of it, and there's the spiritual side of it. And so there's these kind of two main threads of mm-hmm. of or levels of of initiation of work, and that that goes back from the original mysteries into shamanism through anthropology yeah these two threads are but it seems in a way it starts with shamanism and and maybe in your case even ends with shamanism You mentioned a moment ago the Paleolithic caves. Some of these caves go back 15,000 years, maybe 30,000 yeah. years. And mm-hmm. it seems as as if uh, there's some consensus in the anthropological community. They were used for ritual purposes, for purposes of initiation. Yeah, that may have been the case, although it's, it's highly subjective it's a very hypothetical notion and that seems to me to be projection and it's entirely likely it's a good projection but the the evidence is really pretty scant uh it's coming back from what we know about the present projecting it onto the past and there isn't really a lot of evidence oh, that I, I know of. I mean, there's you know a few markings in caves and a bit of ochre and such like. And from that, they build up a picture. There's maybe one cave here and one cave here, and there's a little uh, rock tunnel they're climbing through. So, so they're coming up with that. So they're projecting the idea of initiation back onto this rather limited archaeological evidence, and it may well be a good projection. Yeah. Well. Uh, the idea that you have to crawl through a little tunnel into mm-hmm. a cave opening where uh, if you are fortunate enough to have uh, some kind of uh, fire or light available, you can see drawings in, mm-hmm. on the cave wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like a return to the womb. Well, that's very nice way of putting it. So being born is an initiation and we can also put this as a as a patterning onto many many levels of experience being born is an initiation living is an initiation into death uh uh spiritual spirituality was an initiation from religion into wherever we're going into in in the in the new age the space age whatever we call uh what's happening now mm-hmm. uh yeah indeed that but I can imagine if you're alone mm-hmm. in a cave, okay. you're going to enter into an altered state of consciousness. I could imagine that. Certainly, sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, quite likely. I don't suppose <clears throat> everybody would. Mm-hmm. We need to be careful about overgeneralizing, but there would you would one assume that would be a tendency. It's a technique to to develop, to produce. And, and it does seem to me to be the case that uh, an altered state of consciousness is involved in many of the other initiation rituals, uh, not just uh, those encountered by anthropologists, but also our historical understanding of the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks, other ancient peoples. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in your experience mm-hmm. uh, in contemporary shamanic workshops, mm-hmm. uh, you also entered into an altered state of consciousness. Yes, yes, and I, I would personally regard that as the quintessential initiation, which is into uh, what is currently called cosmic consciousness 
or unitive consciousness or God is another name for that experience which is like the greater mystery or the mystery in Christian terms it's the mystery which is the mystery of God in platonic terms it is uh, it's the mystery again uh, yeah that's a, a, a quintessential experience I think of, of initiation mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned the Christian mysteries, mm. and uh, it, it appears from the historical record that the, the Greek mystery tradition sort of died out in the Christian era, but uh, it seems in early Christianity, they yeah, also incorporated uh, something akin to the Greek mysteries. Something like that, yeah. It's a, it seems to be a complex history, uh, as best I could figure it out. Uh, the Greek or Roman, by this time, I suppose, uh, mystery tradition didn't exactly die out. It was more died out <laughs> by the Christ, by the, the 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 take up of Christianity Forced in, in the Roman Empire. Indeed, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the relationship between Christianity and and initiation is interesting and complex. Uh, the, the sacraments uh, can be related directly to initiatory practices. There are contrary views in that respect. Uh, the life of Christ, Jesus, the figure Christ, uh, is also an initiatory story and has been reviewed that way for a hundred years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's focus for a moment on the Eleusinian mysteries in mm -hmm. ancient Greece. I think one of the most remarkable aspects of, of these mysteries, what little we know about them, is that uh, almost all the prominent people of the society uh, went through the ritual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They seemed to be pretty big. <laughs> it, it wasn't limited just to the uh, priestly class or the shamanic class. Right, right. I don't know much about the extent of the, the democratic extent of it, but it was, they, were, they were major, major, major rights so, for a long period of time. And uh, also, uh, there was a, a secrecy about it. So while we know that uh, many, many prominent people of the culture went through this uh, ritual, and I think we also know that pretty much they came out of it uh, having lost any fear of death. Uh, that is said. Yeah. That is said, yeah. Uh, it may be true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the element of secrecy is important. Uh, what went on is not well known because it was not allowed to be spoken of. Well, one would expect it to have been spoken of, and yet there is precious little, almost no record of exactly what happened. So it really is a mystery. Uh, so th that's, that's kind of the name mystery really does encapsulate uh, the idea of the greater mystery, which can be yeah. the cosmological uh, and, and the idea that, you know, the, this uh, tradition lasted for centuries. 
mm-hmm. in, in ancient Greece. You'd think over that period of time, it'd be almost impossible for a secret to be kept so well. If it was any kind of ordinary secret, yes. But if the secret was an experience, you cannot really transfer an experience in words. It can only resonate with somebody who has had one. <laughs> uh, it's still incredible. I, I, I think it's still incredible that it seems to be no record. It may be that we just haven't found the records. It well, may be that there are records that we haven't located. That's possible. It is said that the mystical experience is ineffable. You can't speak of it. And yet, poets write about it. Mystics write about it. It may not be possible to speak of it precisely, but people endeavor to put it into words. And there were many poets and playwrights in ancient Greece who went through that process. Yeah, the... You use the word uh, ineffable. Of course, that's coming from William James. I I take issue with that myself. I I find it uh, not necessarily to be ineffable in any sense that any other experience is, is is ineffable. For example, can you talk to me? Can you explain to me your experience of, and in consciousness studies, the classic example is blue. So what is it like to experience blue? And you can't say what it's like to be, to experience blue exactly. And it's not necessarily so different. It may be a different in extent, but it's not necessarily radically different to, to talk about the experience of what, whatever we're going to call this thing, source, cosmic consciousness, God, whatever the word is, whatever the expression is. That's on one side of, of the, the response to, to that question. The other side is that it's, it's quite possible to put it into words. And we, we don't have to be poetic. Uh, we can say precisely, uh, not precisely a little bit sharp, but one can say what it is. One can say what in what the experience consists, the structure of it, the nature of it, we, we can do that, yeah. So we don't have to be mysticizing about the mystical experience. That's not necessary. In fact, you know, there are libraries full of books <laughs> describing it. Right. Uh-huh. In, in poetic language or fairly straightforward language? Both. In, in okay. both instances, philosophical or poetic mm-hmm. or uh, dramatic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then we need to drop the word ineffable. Uh, perhaps, although it's, you know, you, it's hard to pinpoint it precisely. There's, there's a point at which language fails. And that point holds for any experience. Not just a mystical experience. Isn't that interesting? Uh, that's a, that's an argument. Uh, well, but, see what it says to me uh-huh. uh, actually is that every experience is a mystical experience. Oh, that's very nice. I like that. Yeah, it it does say that to me, uh-huh. uh, and, and uh-huh. I regard it that way. You and know, then, people, then we take that further, and then an experience is is a is a is an item or a moment or an event of consciousness. So yeah. consciousness itself is a mystery. Or a miracle. Or a miracle, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the very idea that we're here, it may seem the most prosaic thing in the world. We're sitting in a studio with video cameras in front of us, but uh, think of the uh, all that's required for this moment to exist. I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a miracle, strangely from a scientific point of view, because uh, science cannot... 
has not produced consciousness out of this neuronal matter, this stuff, yeah. and one suspects cannot do that. It cannot be reduced. It has to be a fundamental. Uh, so, so that production is somewhat miraculous. The production of consciousness is miraculous because we we don't know how to how to how to do that. Maybe maybe we'll get a better explanation, but. There's not a lot of hope. Yeah, well, my friend Jack Sarfati, who I've mm -hmm. spoken about in one of the in-presence uh, monologues I've done, believes that he knows how, if he only had another $100 million in government funding, he, we could build conscious robots. Uh-huh. Okay. In, in his opinion. And right. who knows? I, I'd say it's a long shot, but maybe uh -huh. he's right. You know, like data in Star Trek. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, what would they be built of? Um... Matter. Yeah. So is the matter conscious? Well, it's you is know, this, what is are this, we built up. Yeah, exactly. We're going down <laughs> another line here, I think. Yeah. In, in any case, we're, we're drifting a bit away from our central focus Indeed, here yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on initiation. Uh, what do we know about the early Christian mysteries? Uh, I'm under the impression that uh, they didn't last that long. That there was uh, mm -hmm. a lot of criticism, like you know, you know, you're behaving as if you were Greeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, there was that. Uh, there, there certainly <clears throat> was a, a, a mysteries tradition, mysteries programs set up by the early Christian fathers. Uh, among the among the most famous of early Christians, they 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 advocated and planned mysteries, uh, mystagogic performances. There was that, and I'm not sure how long that lasted. Uh, I think it faded, but I can't really say when from my memory. And it may not have been the same in all places because Christianity wasn't one thing. There were mm. many Christianities, so so it would be different in different places, different centres. What was going on in Rome might have been quite different from what was going on in Trieste, for example. Well, I gather that a, an important part of it were, were the uh, desert fathers, mm -hmm. who basically, like the shamans, were were living alone in the desert, often in caves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was another influence in, from that we came through to the monastic system. That, that was a direct source into the monastic system, and that in itself is an initiatory framework. Uh, and that did continue, of course. That didn't die out, no matter how the how to what extent Christianity suppressed, reduced, disallowed active experience in an initiatory framework so that only one was taking a piece of bread representing the body etc there was nothing really going on ish it could be of course but it's not very well, you're active referring to, to the eucharist yeah in, in this case ceremony uh, which is it's, it's if looked at uh Carefully, it's a mystical event of some sort, incorporating the the body of Christ within oneself. It's a mystical representation, but whether the individual has a mystical experience is is questionable. But at the same time, the the monastic system was continuing. So, although the 
initiatory history was being pushed down, as as you could put it, by the the Christian development and the hegemonious development of of what people should believe and the dogma and what they should do, etc., etc. Uh, at the same time, there was the monastic tradition, which upheld to a certain extent, in some ways, the initiatory framework, and that eventually led to the Jesuits, uh, who did employ an initiatory system for their youngsters and it included readings and it led eventually to the application of the idea of the old mysteries to the tribal situation in Canada in 1710, 1720 by, uh, what was his name, Joseph, Joseph Francois Lafitte. And that would be the one of the pinpoints for the, the connection from the mysteries to the tribal initiation. Because we're talking about someone who is both a Jesuit mm -hmm. priest mm -hmm. and, an, in effect, an anthropologist. Yeah, his work is sometimes called proto-anthropology, like the first work in proto-anthropology. And it's, it's very highly regarded in, in some aspects, like his design work, his, his study of the designs of the, of the dwellings, for example. Uh, he does very nice drawings and he's, he's got a lot of nice... Uh, uh, observations, but he's centrally concerned with the is in two volumes. But the heart of the book is very much concerned with with the initiation. He doesn't use the word initiation at that point. This is too early for the application at that point. It's this is still the mysteries, uh, and he's primarily concerned. The very heart of it is with the is with the spiritual aspect, uh, what we would call now the shamanic. Uh, and, and he's in North America. That's he? right. He's, this is French the, territories of Canada. Yeah, Iroquois Seneca people uh, in, in, in the French Canada area. Yeah, yeah. And am I correct in uh, suggesting that, that he noticed some connection between their rituals and those of the ancient Greeks? The ancient Greeks, the those as reported by the early and Christian fathers and mothers. I don't think he mentions the mothers, but that's something that should be mentioned. There were the early Christian mothers also. Uh, yeah, he puts those two. He, he puts those two. And he he makes the connection. He's not the first to make the connection. That was done like at least a hundred years before that, in uh, in South America. That connection of the of the activities of the savages or the Sauvage uh, in their production of what they would what we would call the shaman that's generalizing that word across all cultures they would have different words according to each culture uh, i i use the word spirit worker I, like like sex worker we have spirit worker uh -huh. I, I, that's i prefer that they they might not like to be called shaman because that's a projection of the western uh taking of a very specific cultural item from siberia exactly and then imposing it on on uh -huh. well not on everybody not really on you don't talk so much about african shamanism or australian shamanism that's less common but certainly in the americas uh, that's generally applied yeah. uh but the uh, going back to the origin of of this application of the greek 
Greco-Roman history onto the experience of the peoples in the New World. So we have the explorers discovering the New World in, in, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, seeing the people there, and this is all very new. This is other, this is foreign, and they are relating it to that other other, that other foreignness, which is their root in the Greco-Roman culture, and they're making a connection between the two, and that also develops in the realm of initiation, the well, mysteries. I, I suspect some of it may be that these um, Jesuit priests and others who were the early investigators uh, were very sympathetic to the natives and and didn't want to see them just as savages, but uh, by relating them to the ancient Greeks and Romans who were held in high esteem, it was mm -hmm. a way of uh, bestowing on them a, a certain status, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's more than one way of looking at that. One way is that they regarded them as humans. They could be saved. They were worth working for in the missionary context. So therefore they were not savage in the sense of animal, in the sense of uh, capital to be used for labor and conquest. So in that sense they would be sympathetic. Uh, of course they wouldn't be sympathetic to their particular expression of their spirituality in terms of the savage satanic form they would also call them satanic mm. so the, it was a it was a, a two-edged knife that mm. one uh, yeah, as in practically everything you've encountered and uh, yeah of course <laughs> and yes and no <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we also touched on the freemasons and, uh -huh, and their uh -huh. rituals uh -huh. and i I think the the Freemasons is another organization where, in, in in some sense, it's like a trade guild, and in another sense, it's it's carrying on uh, a, a perennial philosophy going back perhaps to the ancient Egyptians. Yes and no. <laughs> mm. uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, contemporary scholarship focuses on the 18th century as the birth of modern Freemasonry or the rebirth of Freemasonry, we, we could say of Masonry. Uh, and it's quite linked to not so much the, the secrecy and clandestine aspects that we, we think of now popularly, but more to the Enlightenment and to uh, a, a, a scientific thrust. The rationalism. Uh, indeed, 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 yeah. Uh, but at the same time, this esoteric thread carrying through mm -hmm. and the rights of admission into the order. Well, you know, it raises for me, mm -hmm. I think, a very interesting point, and that is that we often associate rationalism with uh, the science and, of mm -hmm. course, rationalism in the 18th century and the 17th century in, involved revolutionary fervor to overthrow the, the rule of monarchs. Mm -hmm. And so the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians are often linked to revolutionary movements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, some people assume that if you're interested in the mystical, the occult, the esoteric, that you're um, forsaking rationalism in favor of some sort of superstition, uh, irrational superstition of the unconscious. But other people, particularly today, particularly many guests on this 
uh, video channel when mm-hmm. we talk about the philosophy of idealism, the mm-hmm. perennial philosophy and so on, insists that it's through rational logic that they arrive at esoteric truths. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I tend to take that view. I think that you can be highly rational uh, mm-hmm. and, and that leads you to an appreciation of the mystical. Okay, uh, so this seems to be like a uh, an intellectual journey for some, right? I mean, uh, for for myself, it's exper- experiential. Mm-hmm. My mysticism comes from my experience. I don't think that I'm a particularly irrational person. I find myself to be fairly rational on the whole, uh, but. Uh, there is a rationality in the mysticism, and that's not that mysticism isn't in itself a irrational domain outside of rationality. No, it seems to me that to start with pure experience is is more or less what Descartes was advocating in his philosophy. I think, therefore, I am. I, I, I think there. Uh, I think, therefore, I am better expressed as uh, I I am conscious yeah. therefore I am yes uh, my yeah indeed yeah and I'm conscious is is by coming back to the sense of consciousness itself as a, as a mystical phenomenon qualia <laughs> indeed, indeed experiencing yeah. the color blue yeah, yeah, <laughs> if yeah. I am having that experience that I must exist mm-hmm. and to me that is the bedrock of rationality mm-hmm how do you mean it's where it starts. Any mm-hmm. rational system has to start from I exist. Well, how do I know I exist? Well, maybe. I'm not sure I would agree with that. I All think right. a, a, a rational system can start from a material uh, standpoint of it doesn't really matter whether I exist, that exists. So we have an alternative of, of an idealist subjective starting point, which goes with consciousness, and, we're, and a, uh, an objective materialist starting point, uh, which goes with objects. Okay, I could take issue with you there, but mm-hmm. that, that would be a different conversation. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I'll, I'll pass on, okay. on the opportunity mm-hmm. to engage in a philosophical dispute with you right now, because I want to come back to the the role of the Freemasons in our understanding of initiation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in what context are you? Well, <clears throat> as I recall, uh, at one point, as uh, anthropologists were looking at mm-hmm. uh, the Freemason practices, I suppose some of the anthropologists were Freemasons mm-hmm. at that time, and looking at Native cultures, they mm. they began to demystify the idea mm. of initiation. Mm. It became more of a secular thing. Yeah, I'm not sure if... Uh Many anthropologists actually were Freemasons. Uh, uh, Masonry in the 19th century in in Britain wasn't necessarily that well respected, uh, is my sense of things, even though, of course, it went all the way up to the crown. (laughs) Uh, It was always a a slightly alternative uh, thread. not so much that the anthropologists themselves were were Freemasons, but more that they understood the ritual activities that they observed among the tribal peoples 
in terms of the practices as they understood or conceived the contemporary culture of the time being Masonic. Uh, that's how they related it. It, it would be they, the, the, the native activities in this ritual that makes a boy into a man, paradigmatically, are like the activities in the Masonic temple. Whether they'd actually been in a Masonic temple is another matter. Maybe they had, maybe they hadn't. Usually they, they hadn't, I think. Once or twice they had. Once or twice they were, but or they, they, they'd in, been involved in, in the Masonic ritual of entry, but they'd found it to be uh, not worth bothering to carry on. Uh, that's also to be found. So this is fair. But I don't think that the anthropologists were Freemasons as such. I don't think that's the, the influence is not quite so direct. It's a little bit more indirect. It's a, it's a general cultural uh, knowledge of something to pin on, something to relate, some way to understand what these, what these strange people are doing. Well, you mentioned that the, um, the crown, the royalty or the nobility were involved in Freemasonry. Mm -hmm. As I understand, yeah, yeah. I can't remember. One of the, uh, when was this, 1713, and the, there were two organizations in dispute in Britain. I'm coming back to Britain, of course, as a, a whole American tradition there, but just in Britain in 1713, I think that's the right date. Or was it 1813? Uh, they were brought together. There was a unification, 1813, 1813, there, there was a unification of the, the two branches that had separated. And that was under the authority of the, the fourth prince regent. I forget the names. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah, it was going very much to the, to the highest levels. Yeah. So if, if I understand this correctly, in, in the Rosicrucian movement of the 17th century, there was uh, an attempt to undermine the uh, uh, mon monarchical system that was in place in Europe. Hmm. Uh, that the Rosicrucians were, to a certain extent, revolutionary. And, mm -hmm. uh, but later on, it became incorporated uh, by the nobility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not something I know much about, but there was always a, a, a constant uh, interplay of, uh, and, and tensions between the the hegemonic religious form and the alternatives, yeah. which would play into Catholic, Protestant, or Protestant, Presbyterian, Quaker, different uh, aspects of the alternative religious forms in conflict or accepting the the that that was, that was always in play at the same time. Yeah, it's very complex. Any one situation would be different. Well, do you think there's a sense in which the Masons, in some of their rituals, uh, incorporated anything of an authentic mystical nature? I, I, I can't claim any knowledge on that. A couple of things that I've read were very perfunctory, and you'd get the sense there was nothing much going on at all. Uh, but some of the some of the buildings they had would seem to indicate there was a highly elaborate ritual system and the, the readings that they had to memorize and the catechisms. Yeah, that would suggest yes. But but was that did they, how ex how mystically experientially inducing was that? I don't know. How, I wasn't there. I, I can't say. I suspect it must have been. Sometimes yeah. it would depend. Also, like any anything like this, on what was being 
been projected how much the the initiate was putting onto this uh, event, this uh, this ritual of of entry. Uh, was it a big thing for them? If it was this big thing for them, and there was the set and setting, the established uh, environment was there, then sometimes it would be. I would think it would be very variable. I would think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's been difficult to generalize. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, when we're talking about mystical experience, which mm-hmm. is so private, so interior, it's it's hard to know just by looking at, yeah, yeah, yeah. at writings or architecture or yeah. historical accounts. I, I think it's fair to say that there were certain individuals, Cagliostro, mm-hmm. the Count St. Germain, mm-hmm. who were regarded as mystics who mm-hmm. were also involved in various Masonic orders. Right, right, right. and, and that, that's a fair point. Yeah. I think uh, Manley Hall, mm-hmm. in his book, The Secret Teachings of All Ages, uh, mm-hmm. does definitely refer to various Masonic traditions as, as carrying on what he would have regarded, I think, as the perennial philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he would, he would say that, yeah. We haven't really touched on the ancient Egyptians. Uh-huh. And, uh, and maybe it's a pure projection, but it, as I visited the pyramids in Giza mm-hmm. and, and other pyramids at Saqqara mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. elsewhere, mm-hmm. they strike me as being more like chambers for initiation with the cave-like quality to them than tombs, for example. Right. Well, that's another theory. Uh, the pyramids, the Egyptian pyramids are, are fascinating and uh, difficult to know what they're there for. Not just those pyramids, pyramids in other places in the world. There's many theories. Uh, so another theory is uh, they were. It was related to some form of energy production, and then we're getting into uh, a whole other realm of yeah. conversation about uh, what was going on in ancient times and and, and our notion of human history and history of. Uh, more broadly of life on the planet, and that's, that, that takes it off go in another tangent. Is it possible that the pyramids were used as... Um, that sounds like a long shot to me. Uh, it's interesting. But some of the... I mean, if, if, you're, if we're imagining crawling through the through the through the the long tunnels to get to the that they're awfully tough climbs yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, maybe yeah it's possible isn't it uh, I'm inclined to think so uh, uh-huh. based on personal experience what was your personal well, experience now you talked about the uh, sense of cosmic consciousness okay uh, from the shamanic workshop that uh-huh. you participated yeah. in some three decades ago yeah uh, I've been in the King's Chamber, the Great Pyramid, uh, with groups of people on multiple occasions. And mm. my sense was that uh, almost universally, people who had the experience uh, of placing themselves in uh, the sarcophagus in the King's Chamber, the Great mm-hmm. Pyramid, mm often done uh, late at night when there aren't tourists around because okay. the tourists are chattering and noisy. Yeah, yeah. But often groups were allowed to mm-hmm. have a private time. Okay. Uh, people universally reported experiences, uh, I have to call it an altered state of consciousness. Now, mm-hmm. you could say the set and the setting were very conducive to that. It may have nothing to do with what the ancient Egyptians experienced, but there was a sense almost 
universally reported by the individuals uh, I've been with in groups who, who, who said it felt like they were flying th- through space, hmm. floating through the cosmos. Hmm. Hmm. And, and these uh, giant structures were built to house this chamber for this purpose is the idea. Perhaps. That's a, it's a huge structure yes. to build for that. It would be. Yeah, that would, and, and unless we're going to introduce some uh, ideas of the pyramid as a form of a focus of energy to, which sounds a little bit mystical, but maybe we're talking about a, a form of energy that isn't recognized. Uh, unless we're talking, that's possible. It sounds, it sounds, uh, to my mind, it's unlikely that that was the purpose of the building of the pyramids, which is not to say that anybody who goes in there won't experience that. Uh, of course, any dark enclosed space, we could experience it here. I mean, if we turn all the cameras off and sit right. alone, it, it'll, it, we'll get that. right. It might take just a, a tiny shift of awareness to have such an experience. And if you've gone to the pyramids, you're going to be, you're going to be right for such a thing. Absolutely. Uh, and when the crowds yeah. go and then, then the chatter yeah. goes, it's going to be a, it's going to be really, really, really wonderful place for it. And so that one would leave, would lead one to wonder, was that actually the intention of the building of the pyramids? And he had these huge structures for that. Well, well, possible. It, well, it, they were huge structures, whatever they were for. Right. I but mean, to say that somebody needed such a huge structure as for a tomb, anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't personally, I don't take the the tomb. The tomb theory is not convincing to me. The initiation theory is, is sounds better. Uh, it still doesn't You're convince me. You're leaning towards some sort of energy. Uh, yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those sarcophaguses, I mean, they're, they're tremendous things just to lie in those. I, mm-hmm. I, I think there was, I think it's something to do with the water, the aquifers. Um, I think there's something different going on with the pyramids, but I, I have no idea what it may have been. I mean, yeah. we could imagine uh, it was a... Uh, uh, how do we produce uh, nuclear nuclear fusion? We produce at the moment or fission? Which which one do we produce? Fission. Fission. So we're talking about cold fusion. So yeah. could you imagine the pyramids were to house cold fusion? Now that that's going way out, but that's that's what attracts me. Something like that. I see. I see. I see. Well. Uh, we can only speculate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yours is a much more grounded speculation <laughs> than mine. <laughs> we have a lot to learn yet about cold fusion, and uh, I, I assume that we will. There are many uh, people who are interested in forms of energy that are not yet recognized generally uh, in the scientific community. I throw that out there. Equally, we have a lot to learn about ancient architecture. Yeah. I mean, you, there are very very rational, Mm -hmm. level-headed YouTube channels out there looking at the ancient architecture in in Peru, in Egypt, in other places, and finding it, frankly, incredible to think that people at that stage of development could do these these works and giving various Mm -hmm. reasons and empirical evidence for, for why couldn't have been possible. Well, I think it's fair to say this, Andy, that your book, Mm. Anthropology and Mysticism in the Making of Initiation, is an effort to establish initiation studies as a unique field 
uh, of inquiry. Yeah, and it's yeah. the first time that, I, mm. to my knowledge, that's been done. Yeah, I think I think that's. I, I would take that. I would accept that and, and agree with it. Yeah, that was that was what I thought I was doing was establishing initiation studies, not in any way imagining that it would go on to have an effect. Uh, but at least doing that. And it would be fair to say that uh, should this field take root, and I hope it does, there'll be a lot of things to explore. One being the the architecture of various uh, structures and chambers and caves mm. that may have been used for purposes of initiation. Mm. Mm. Well, well, what your suggestion is quite suggesting is quite different from the 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 theory of Paleolithic cave use. Yeah. You're you're suggesting the a high level of design. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting or, or an evolution from one to the other. Um, more than an evolution, I would say a huge jump. Well, I want to make another jump before <laughs> we on. end this uh, interview, and I should mention for benefit of our viewers, you're here in Albuquerque, and we plan several more okay, interviews uh -huh. while, while you're here. But it, I think it's worth mentioning. Just uh, maybe as as a, a little hint of what may yet be to come, that that one of the connections that brought you here is through uh, Ray Hernandez's group Free, mm -hmm. the uh, Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research and Extraordinary Experience, and uh, that you yourself uh, were drawn to that group because you've had some UFO sightings, which, mm -hmm. for all we know, may be in some way related to this process. Of initiation. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that other than to say that is correct. If, if I go deeply into it, I think we will be into another two or three interviews. <laughs> I shouldn't say too much. Yeah. But, but yes, yes. Uh, I guess UFO, I, I don't, I would take, I would don't like the term UFO for what I experienced. Uh, the contemporary term of UAP is much better because UFO is flying. Well, I don't know if what I saw was exactly flying. It was airborne. That's the A. Uh, UFO object was what I saw an object. I don't know. I mean, I saw what I saw. It was a phenomenal experience. It was a UAP rather than a UFO. And if you say UFO, you imagine like the flying saucer. What I saw was, uh, you know, much smaller than a flying saucer. U UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. Right, right. The, the term that was supposedly going to be outed through Hillary Clinton, but it went wrong. So, <laughs> so it's not really in the public domain very, very much. But UAP is a much wider, more elastic uh, name, and it doesn't have the baggage of UFO. Uh, and for my mind, it captures the idea of the smaller size of what I saw, which which wasn't obviously carrying beings. All right. I, and uh, we'll, I guess we can just leave it at that. But it does suggest it does suggest that there are many dimensions to this process of mystical opening. Yeah, that, yeah. that we have yet to touch upon. Indeed, indeed, and and the the experience of UFO or alien that is also an initiation, of course. Yeah. Well. Andy Hilton, it's been a great pleasure having this conversation, this initiatory, <laughs> or shall I say initial, <laughs> conversation with you. I look forward to more. Uh -huh, me too, me too. Thank you very much. Thank you for being with me. And thank you for being with us.